It's May 1983, and your friend bursts through your front door. I got them, he exclaims. There in his hands is precisely what you were hoping for. Two tickets for the 9 o'clock showing of Return of the Jedi. When the big night finally comes, you buy your drinks and popcorn and settle into your seats. There's a definite buzz in the theater. Your anticipation is sky high, but there's still a bittersweet feeling. Yes, this is the culmination of the most remarkable trilogy anyone has ever seen. But as far as you know, this is the very end of Star Wars. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connect it. And today, we take a look back on the movie that signified the end of an era, but also the beginning of a whole new one. This is a story of Return of the Jedi. It's hard to imagine, but there was a time when we just didn't have a lot of Star Wars content. Before 1983, there was only A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and even though George Lucas wants to pretend it doesn't exist, the infamous Star Wars Holiday Special. When it came out in 1977, Star Wars A New Hope changed not only the world of movies, but pop culture. Out of seemingly nowhere, a whole new universe emerged. For kids of the 70s and 80s, this led to a whole new world of action figures, vehicles, and play sets the likes we had never seen before. From Kenner's Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back collection, it's Millennium Falcon that you put together. Batteries not included. Nice landing, Han Solo. Uh-oh, come on, Chewbacca. Stormtroopers are coming. Action figures each sold separately. But how do you follow up such an extraordinary film? When The Empire Strikes Back was released in May 1980, it took the franchise in a much deeper and more intense direction. Instead of just a rehash of the first film, Empire further explored the hero's journey of Luke Skywalker. George Lucas was a big fan of the work of Joseph Campbell, and Campbell shared that all mystic and historical narratives are just variations of the hero's journey. That journey is where an ordinary person goes on adventures, gains knowledge, and with that newfound knowledge, becomes victorious, returning home completely transformed. And they, of course, face challenges and uncertainty along the way. The hero has to face some darkness, and that is the story of Luke Skywalker told over three movies. The struggles and adversity really ratcheted up in The Empire Strikes Back, which made it more atmospheric, with quite a darker tone. Empire also finished on a note of uncertainty and contains one of the biggest reveals in movie history when we discover that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Today, anything that is remotely successful automatically gets a sequel. But going into the 80s, sequels had an uncertainty about them, and there was no guarantee they would be successful. Studios were hesitant if they would be financially viable. But The Empire Strikes Back changed all of that. But when it came time to wrap up the trilogy, what would the final installment look like? But no matter how the series concluded, Star Wars was now a part of our lives forever. Star Wars, for Star Wars' sake, really grabbed me 
when I got the movies on VHS in the fifth grade at Christmas time. It was a big deal. Fred Kennedy is a fellow Canadian who works in radio and TV and not only has a deep love of Star Wars, but is also an incredible creator. My name is Fred Kennedy. I'm a radio announcer at Q107 in Toronto. I also am a writer. I've got a comic book with Image Comics called Dead Romans, which is out right now. It's about the, the Battle of Tudorburg Forest with a love story in there because those two things go together. I've also got another book coming out with Blizzard Entertainment that I can't talk about just yet. That's coming out uh, sometime next year. And I write, voice, and produce an audio drama called Mud 79, which is a Star Wars audio drama that takes place about five years after the end of the Clone Wars. You'll definitely want to stick around to the end of the episode to learn more about this remarkable project. But one of my favorite things about Star Wars is we all have our own Star Wars origin story with distinctive memories of the first time we discovered it. I first saw Star Wars, it was at my Uncle Steve's house. I think it was Laserdisc. I'm not sure. I remember he had a Laserdisc player and in my brain I always remember it being on Laserdisc. We watched uh, The Empire Strikes Back. That was the very first one that we watched. And that was actually the only Star Wars movie that I'd seen up until the fifth grade when there was that big CBS home video re-release of the original trilogy. And then I watched all three. And I remember the very first time watching Darth Vader take off his mask in Return of the Jedi and how huge of a moment that was. The anticipation there was huge. And I think it was when I got the movies on VHS that I really fell in love with Star Wars. Like Fred, the first installment of Star Wars I ever saw was The Empire Strikes Back. It was at a family campground for movie night. And I'll never forget the feeling of being transported to this unique and incredible world, as I'm sure you did too. The Empire Strikes Back left such an indelible mark on a generation. It was a remarkable progression of the Star Wars story in every aspect. But because of the astonishing success of Empire, was this going to cast a shadow over the third and final installment? You know, if you had asked me about the relationship between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi when I was younger, I would have said Return of the Jedi dramatically improves on everything that had been done before, etc., etc., but now I would say that uh, Empire Strikes Back is my favorite, and it's not even really close. Uh, I really, that's not to say I don't like Return of the Jedi. I think there's some very cool aspects of Return of the Jedi. There's a really great completion of the story arcs, and there's some really cool, like, behind the scenes stories and notes and lore about how that story came together. Like, there were plans that maybe Darth Vader wasn't telling the truth about being Luke Skywalker's dad. That was something that was on the table, but George Lucas actually consulted some child... This is the story. He consulted some child psychologists who said that it could be detrimental to children about honesty in adults if it turned out that Darth Vader had been lying about everything the whole time. There was also a plan that Boba Fett was actually going to be Luke Skywalker's mom, and that's where the scene with Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia being the bounty hunter, allegedly that is what was the impetus for that scene happening, being that she was Princess Leia in disguise rather than Boba Fett being Luke Skywalker's mother in disguise. There's all kinds of really 
wild stories that supposedly could have happened that we really don't know. I think there's a lot of reviews that kind of dump on Return of the Jedi, but I I love it. I love it so much. I think it's got a fantastic conclusion and Luke Skywalker's decision at the end uh, not to kill the Emperor. He's, you know, he's, he stays true to the course of the Jedi and giving Darth Vader that redemption arc as a father, choosing to save his son. That line, father, please. I, I love it. I think it's a great way to close it off and finish it. No matter, with all the flaws, and there are many, I still absolutely adore that movie. Star Wars A New Hope gave us special effects the likes we really hadn't ever seen before. And the fact they hold up this well after more than 45 years is a testament to the production team behind them. When Empire was released three years later, the special effects seemed to have increased by leaps and bounds, as did the budget. Filming for Return of the Jedi began in early 1982, and by then, things had progressed even further. You know, when I got those VHS tapes um, the, of the Star Wars trilogy, the CBS Home Video ones, they, there was a, a special documentary that came with them called From Star Wars to Jedi, the saga behind the saga. And I like it sort of like mimics what you see on DVDs and the special features and all that stuff today. And I loved Star Wars so much. I watched that, that making of Star Wars VHS tape just as many times as I watched the actual movies. And they talk a lot about the progression of the special effects in that. And one of the big motivating factors behind the, the scene at Jabba's Palace was that George Lucas never liked the cantina scene in A New Hope. His idea of what he wanted to do and what he wound up doing really fell short. There were some costumes in there. Uh, that were actually stolen from the prop departments of horror movies uh, because there just wasn't enough money to make all the costumes that George Lucas envisioned. But when he was able to do Return of the Jedi, he had all the money and he had all the time and he had all the people because he'd assembled this team, Industrial Light and Magic, over the course of the years to create the best special effects on the planet at the time. And that's why there are moments in the movie where they feel like they're really just special effects show-off scenes. And some people would argue they are. In fact, one of the big things that you talk about when special effects with that movie specifically is when they did the special edition re-release in 1997, there was the big musical dance number. And there's lots of instances where George Lucas had joked around about his desire to put a musical number in a Star Wars movie and just not being able to pull it off. And... The idea of of him saying that he always wanted to have something like that in Return of the Jedi and then putting it in the special edition, you could argue that that's what he would have done from the very beginning. I do not like that musical number, by the way, and it has nothing to do with being like some goofy purist. I just think it completely takes you out of the movie and the tone. You're in this dark, decrepit, dungeony palace with this horrible sociopath, and then you got this scoot out a bebopping song number. It just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't belong. But besides the improved visual effects used in Return of the Jedi, things had also progressed quite significantly in the world of sound. When you talk about special effects and production values, you also need to talk about sound. It was this movie that led to the creation of THX. Because after they'd done the original cut of the film, they did some random screenings at just random theaters. 
And the speakers in these theaters were so bad you couldn't pick up all the sound production. And it was really frustrating for the sound editors and the people that worked on the movie that they put in all this work that you couldn't even hear when the movie was in the theater. So it really changed the way audio production was addressed in a movie. And it's all thanks to Return of the Jedi. All this like SDDS sound, Dolby 7.1, all that stuff wouldn't have happened without this movie. And I think that's really its biggest legacy in terms of production values. But special effects and sound design can only carry a movie so far. You still need to be invested in the story and the characters. And through the first two movies, we witnessed the progression of Luke from simple farm boy to learning the ways of the Force and ultimately becoming a true Jedi. With Return of the Jedi wrapping up the trilogy, Luke's character arc also needed completion. I really think that you need to focus on, it's Luke Skywalker's story. I mean, there's all kinds of characters that people love and Star Wars as a whole became Darth Vader's story, but the original trilogy needs to be looked at as the hero's journey for Luke Skywalker, the farm boy becoming something great, checking all the cliche boxes. That doesn't make it bad. It's just that is the archetype. That is what George Lucas wanted. There's the constant stories about Boba Fett was sort of sidelined because of how popular he was getting. And he died in a humiliating, ridiculous way just so that everyone would remember how cool Luke Skywalker was. Uh, and I think Return of the Jedi really, you know, really makes Luke Skywalker super cool. There is a very wild scene that sort of got left on the cutting room floor of Luke going back to Obi-Wan's hut and you know meditating on the force and constructing his own lightsaber and i really wish that scene had been left in i think it's a cool scene i think also one of the things people complain about the new star wars movie is that new star wars movies is that it feels like the characters got too good too powerful too fast and luke had to struggle over the course of three movies just to be good enough to even hold his own against darth vader you know and i think that that scene having him contemplate on the living force and commune with the ghost of Obi-Wan and construct his own lightsaber would have been a really cool way of really hammering down that struggle, that growth through struggle. I think showing a character grow through struggle is the best thing you can do with a story because people care more about the effort the character is putting in to succeed rather than the success per se. You're allowed to fail. Like Luke Skywalker trains with Yoda for weeks on Dagobah, goes to Bespin and gets the crap. Beat. Like it's just, um, he can't do anything. He just gets worked by Vader for like half an hour. It's that's, that's what the character needs to do in order to, to grow. You need to fail, you know, and showing the characters fail, I think is just as important as showing them succeed. And I think that, it took three movies for Luke to become a competent Jedi, and that's what I think makes the movies so good. But you can't have a great hero without a great adversary, and Darth Vader became one of the greatest movie villains of all time. It's a character that struck fear into the hearts of an entire generation of kids. But underneath the robotic facade was a real person, Anakin Skywalker. Back in the 80s, we didn't know his full true story, but through the original trilogy, we did see some progression with him too. And his journey of sorts also culminated in Return of the Jedi. 
I liked the redemption of Anakin Skywalker, and I, I loved the idea. It really is the the father and son relationship, the child and parent, however you want to put it. Um, that the the whole world, the whole universe, has given up on Darth Vader. His closest friends, the people that knew him best, gave up on him. But that childlike loving innocence of a son for their father you know the child to the parents seeing the good in them and refusing to give up on them and i think that that's that's a, a strong a strong core principle of the star wars franchise is that choosing to see the best in people and believing that they can be something you know showing them that you're not giving up on them so they shouldn't give up on themselves and Vader, in the end, chooses to save the one person in the universe that didn't give up on them. You know, think about that. Obi-Wan gave up on him. Yoda gave up on him. Everyone gave up on him. Not because, not because they shouldn't have. He was a terrible individual. Uh, more machine now, twisted and evil, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But Luke refused to pass. You know? I think that's cool. I think... If anything, Vader's redemption is a testament to the light within Luke as a character, more than anything else. Everything was in place, and Return of the Jedi was set to open in May of 1983. But just before that, one huge last-minute change was needed. Everything 80s will return after these messages. The plan for the movie all along was to call it Revenge of the Jedi. It began as Return of the Jedi, but it was considered a weaker title and changed to Revenge. But as the release day loomed, George Lucas decided that a Jedi doesn't take revenge, and the name changed back to Return of the Jedi. But some promotional material with the title Revenge of the Jedi had already been produced and distributed. If you were around in 1982-83, and depending on where you lived, you may have seen Revenge of the Jedi posters up in your movie theater before the switch was made. And if you grew up then, you may have also seen the teaser trailers shown during the Empire Strikes Back re-releases in the fall of 1982. Revenge of the Jedi Coming May 25th to a theater in your galaxy. As release day loomed, what would the response be? It had been three years since Empire. Did the public still have an interest in Star Wars? Had the audience moved on at all? It turns out that Lucasfilm, 20th Century Fox, and George Lucas himself had nothing to worry about. When it finally opened... Just like the previous two installments, Return of the Jedi took the world by storm. It was easily the smash hit of 1983. This line and others like it are perhaps the ultimate display of the strength of the Force. Thousands of New Yorkers took the day off, some obviously calling in sick because they couldn't wait any longer to see the Return of the Jedi and find out the fate of Luke Skywalker and his friends. This was the case in cities all around North America and eventually spreading to countries all around the world. The movie grossed a then record $45 million in its first week. Converted for today, that's around $140 million. And it also opened on about a third to a quarter fewer screens 
than big blockbusters do today. Return of the Jedi left all competition in its space dust. The other big money makers from 1983 included Tootsie, Flashdance, Trading Places, War Games, Risky Business, Gandhi, and Superman 3. But none of them could hold a candle to Return of the Jedi, which, by the end of its run, brought in nearly $500 million worldwide. In today's money, that's around $1.5 billion. Return of the Jedi also ushered in yet another new era of Star Wars merchandise. Rebo's got the beat, and the band plays on. You can relive it all with Kenner's Star Wars Return of the Jedi Collection. Introducing Size Noodles and the Rebo Band. Jabba the Hutt action playset sold separately. Kids who may have been too young to see A New Hope when it was first in theaters had now caught up on the series, seen the conclusion of the trilogy, and wanted to take the movie home with them. Priya predict the toys will rake in millions of dollars. The movie has just been out for two days, but the kids are already asking Mama for two, three, and even more characters. The Ewoks specifically were a welcome new addition to the Star Wars universe and made for perfect toys and additional play sets. Ultimately, Return of the Jedi was a satisfying conclusion to a franchise that was now part of pop culture lore. Besides introducing us to the Ewoks, we saw the defeat of the Emperor, or so we thought, the redemption of Vader and his ultimate death, the destruction of the rebuilt Death Star, and we discovered that Luke and Leia were brother and sister. But I mentioned about that bittersweet feeling of seeing what, in our minds, was the end of Star Wars as we knew it. But the whole franchise was only just beginning. Return of the Jedi marked the end of the original trilogy, but unbeknownst to us at the time, a whole new era of Star Wars in the 80s was about to be ushered in. Some of this would be built on the back of Return of the Jedi, and would carry over for decades to come. Now, Return of the Jedi was the end of Star Wars, I guess you could say, but you don't take something that's making that much money and just put it on a shelf and never do anything with it again. That never happens, ever. And the fandom was so huge. Uh, there was comic books that were coming out, uh, and then there was the cartoon, the animated series, droids. Ewoks. The Ewok movies with Wilford Brimley, which featured the first bit of profanity in the Star Wars continuity. Uh, I don't know if you could consider any of that stuff canon anymore. I think they look at it now as the expanded universe because those stories led into the expanded universe novels. The most famous of which being the Thrawn trilogy, the Heir to the Empire trilogy, whichever you, whatever you want to call them. But I still think of them maybe not even as canon. Who's to say really? What I feel like the canon of Star Wars is always evolving. And I think it's just a matter of time before Star Wars introduces its very own version of the multiverse, which will be exhausting and tiresome. But I think it's going to happen. And I think when the Ahsoka series drops which is basically just a continuation of the Rebels series, which I firmly believe is the best thing Star Wars ever did. 
I think that we're going to see those elements that were hinted at and toyed with and dropped in those things like the droids and Ewoks and Ewok movies. Those things are going to come back into play just as they've reached out and grabbed things and concepts from the expanded universe novels and comic books. We're starting to see those things start to slowly appear in the forthcoming additions to the Star Wars universe. Return of the Jedi remains one of my all-time favorite pieces of Star Wars content ever. Yes, The Empire Strikes Back is the superior film, but if I think back to the 80s and the first time seeing Jedi, I just think of the pure excitement and action. The energy and pace were frenetic, and the movie barely stops to catch its breath. By the end of the trilogy, we were so much more invested in the stories and the characters, and the final installment, or so we thought, was the perfect culmination of a six-year stretch. But today, with an endless amount of Star Wars content available, what's the legacy of Return of the Jedi? In terms of where Return of the Jedi sits now, like what is its place? Is it the crown jewel? I don't know what you could even say the crown jewel of Star Wars is, but of that nine film saga, it really is a standout. I would, it always appears in like the top three, consistently appears in the top three. And I think even if you take away where it sits from, is it critically the best? I think that everybody that grew up with Star Wars loves that movie because the Ewoks. Uh, and, and I, uh, to be, I know that it sounds a little bit cheesy, but when you're a little kid, you're small and you're vulnerable and the Ewoks are ostensibly small and vulnerable and they're looked at as these cute little guys, but then they stand up and they play a role in distracting the empire, allowing the battle of Endor to be a success and the Death Star to be destroyed. And there's a lot of people that argue about it would be impossible for the Ewoks to win. And I don't think the Ewoks were ever intended to win the battle. They were just intended to fight and serve as a distraction to sort of allow the rebel forces to achieve victory, which they do. I I think in terms of its place on the crown of Star Wars, it's definitely forward-facing and on the front. I love Return of the Jedi. Is it my favorite? No. But growing up, it was always the one that I loved the most. And out of the original trilogy, it's the one that my kids like the most now, which says something about its staying power. Thankfully, as we learned in the 80s, Return of the Jedi was not the end of the line, and the coming decades brought us cartoon series, TV movies, new feature films, books, comic books, video games, animated series, and multiple streaming series. The world of Star Wars expanded in a way we never could have expected back in 1983. For Fred, the growth of Star Wars over the years and his own insights, perspective, and creativity led him to create something very unique. It's called Mud 79, a podcast that is like Star Wars meets Platoon. So I am a lifelong Star Wars fan, and I love the Star Wars community. I think they can be a little bit whiny at times, but I think that that's really a small number of very vocal people. And over the course of the Clone Wars series and the Rebels series, you really saw them peel back the layers on the nuts and bolts and the inner workings of the Republic versus the Empire. And you start to realize that the Republic is not a perfect 
idealist community in any way. It's very, very similar to the Empire in that there's rampant corruption. You could argue that the Empire actually was far less corrupt than the Republic was because it was the corruption within the Republic that led to the rise of the Empire. And I loved that. And I always thought that was something that should be explored more. And then there's a meme that I saw and it had this guy saying, imagine being like one of the construction workers working on the Death Star, just, you know, taking your union job. And then all of a sudden a rebel army shows up and blows it up and you're just trying to feed your family. And I was like, I always took that to heart. And then I, it was actually all these little things sort of like flowed together and they came to a head when I was watching the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary series. Um, and I, there was this guy who was talking about how he volunteered to go fight in Vietnam. And he believed in it. And he said his father fought in the Second World War and all his best friends and closest companions were people that he fought in the Second World War with. His cousins went and fought in Korea and their best friends were the people they went and fought in Korea with. And when Vietnam happened, he was like, this is my time. Now it's my time and I'm going to go. This is my opportunity to do what other people in my family have done. You know, this is what I got to do. And... That idea of signing up to go to Vietnam, getting there and realizing you bought into a lie and what you thought you were going to do is very different from what you're actually doing, I thought was very easy to pick up and put in the Star Wars universe. And with Mud 79, you've got a whole bunch of kids from corners of the galaxy that are fighting for the Empire. And it's not that any of them really like the Empire, it's that they all have reasons to either hate what the Republic was or to hate the enemies of the Empire. And I think that's something that a little bit more nuanced than what we tend to see in Star Wars. And they touched on that actually in The Last Jedi, and I thought it was brilliantly done. I'm not the biggest fan of the movie, but I thought it had some amazing ideas that I really, really gravitated towards. And I thought that concept from The Last Jedi fits in perfectly with what's happening with Mud 79. And I also want, this is a story about poor people. This is a story about the poor people that are working behind the scenes that are the ones that we never hear about. And I kind of hit on that repeatedly, that just because these are the stories of little people that aren't the generals commanding and making the big decisions, that doesn't mean they're not going through their own struggles. And that's really what I wanted to do with Mud 79 that eagerness of youth to go out and make your mark and how so often you get taken advantage of for it. That's Mud 79. You can listen to Mud 79 wherever you listen to your podcast. But as we finish, here's a sample from episode one entitled, You Don't Want to Be a Stormtrooper, where the galaxy is in turmoil and the empire has expanded its hold. We meet Solomon Kwai, a teenager from a farming colony on the outskirts. He's looking for a way out and his own adventures. And this leads him to join the Imperial Army. My name is Solomon Kwai, and at 17 years old, I joined the Imperial Army. If that upsets you, it's probably because you had the good fortune of being born in a place and time with more options. I wasn't. When the Clone Wars broke out, I was a week shy of my 13th birthday. My family was from the colonies in the Valdila system, 
we were a community of farmers, land workers. So, my oldest brother, my older sister, and one of my aunts signed up to fight for the New Republic. We were proud. We believed in the Republic. We knew how oppressive the Trade Federation was to people like us, so this was a cause worth fighting for. My brother was killed in a star battle in the Corvair sector. My sister went missing when her ship attempted to breach a planetary blockade. If your ship goes down in orbit, either you're blown to atoms or you burn up on re-entry when the planet's gravity gets a hold of you. They never found her body. My aunt, Lois, was a nurse on a medical frigate. She came home a year after the fighting stopped. She was a bit squirrely after that. The horrible things she saw and the stories that came with it were the kind that you love to hear when you're young and stupid because you don't understand what any of it actually means. At 17, I came to the realization I'd never make it as a pro Limmy player. I wasn't much of a mechanic either, so a job on the landing platforms was out. And the idea of spending my life in a field harvesting Yebin seed made me sick. So, some of my idiot friends and I did the most responsible thing we could think of. We went into town, got hammered on El Hardian Ale, visited a brothel, and joined the army. I was so drunk, I don't really remember putting my thumb on the screen. I have vague images of us getting the stink eye from the Imperial officer forced to deal with us. That's it. The next thing I remember is waking up in a transport, strapped to a mesh seat with the worst headache I've ever had. There was a Clatoonian sitting beside me with breath so awful it made me throw up. I was still dry heaving and covered in vomit when a sergeant came up and hit me with a stun baton. That was my introduction to life in the Imperial Army. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out Mud79 wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow Fred at Fearless underscore Fred on Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. So be sure to check out my previous episodes to travel back to the 1980s. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.